0: And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 48 and extolling Zion's city. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true and that it's not only living and active as Hebrews 4.12 says, but that through your word, you point us to Christ alone, who is both our our prophet, priest, and king. And so, Lord, we, we are so thankful that your word is true and that it's sufficient and that it's binding on our lives and that you, through it, you point us to Christ. And so, Lord, as we look at Psalm 48, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to fix our eyes on the treasure of Christ himself revealed in the word and that we would know him all the more and that we would grow to treasure him in every aspect and in all of life, that our response to studying Psalm 48 would be one of worship, not just in some uh, compartment of our lives, but Lord, maybe cry out that our life would be one of worship as we live before your face and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 48. Psalm 48. And hear what the Lord has to say today through his word. Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight, trembling to hold them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers. Consider her what. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. That you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. This is the reading of God's holy precious word. Although I've been to many places throughout the world, I've never been to the city of Jerusalem. I have friends though who have been to Palestine. They've told me of the blessing that it was to see the places and the sights in the Holy Land. These reports are inspiring enough that I wish that I could go and visit the Holy Land, seeing the shores of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus stilled the waves, the banks of the brook Kidron which Jesus crossed on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and the streets of old Jerusalem which, through which our Savior carried his cross. And yet there is still something more better than the city of Jerusalem in seeing it that is, the church of Jesus Christ, which fulfills everything that Jerusalem represents as the city of God. Psalm 48 glorifies God as the psalmist gives praise to Zion's holy city, providing a picture of how the church is intended to display the glory of God for the praise of his grateful people. Now, Psalm 48 is the third in a series of psalms dedicated to the holy city of God. Psalm 46, saying of God as a fortress for his city, the holy habitation of the Most High, in Psalm 46, 4. Psalm 47, told of the enthronement of God as the Ark of the Covenant was processed up to Mount Zion. Psalm 48 concludes the sequence, associating the glory of God with the splendor of a city in Psalm 48, 1, which says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. And the scope of the psalm's praise expands beyond now the earthly Jerusalem. Derek Kidner comments that the outlines of the Jerusalem above with the great walls and the foundations which are forever are already coming into view. The psalm begins and ends with an expression of how God is praised because of the city. In verse 1 he says of Psalm 48, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. H.C. Leopold comments that the conclusion that this psalm draws is that the God who dwells at Zion is immeasurably great and will be a sure defense to all who put their trust in him. J.J. Stewart Perot adds, It is the glory of his presence which makes her glorious, the strength of his presence which makes her safe. And in the opening stanza, God is first praised for the beauty of his mountaintop capital, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Psalm 48, 1 through 2 says. Jerusalem rests at 2,500 feet above sea level, and its setting affords it an impressive sense of loftiness. This is why so many Psalms speak of going up to Jerusalem. And the idea of Jerusalem as being lifted up is theologically even more than topographical. Micah prophesied in Micah 4.1, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it. The idea is the saving preeminence of the holy city, the church to which peoples from all the earth will come to know God. And in this vital sense, the beauty of Zion's lofty city it's tied to the missionary spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now the universal scope of Psalm 48, it continues in, in Psalm 48, verse 2, which exclaims "The God's city is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. And if he was speaking only of the exaltation of Jerusalem in his day, the psalmist was engaging in a good deal of sacred hyperbole. At no time was the ancient world focused on marveling at Jerusalem with the possible exception of King Solomon's fleeting reign of splendor. And even at the height of Solomon's glory, Zion was hardly the joy of all the earth. And here again, the meaning is theological. Jerusalem is the city from which salvation comes to the whole earth. And for this reason, its joy has a universal reach. John Calvin says, Christ appeared with his gospel out of Zion to fill the world with its true joy and everlasting felicity, he says. And now many unbelievers do not think of the church as the joy of all the earth and would rather be practically anywhere else than the church on the Lord's day. In fact, those who do come perhaps at the invitation of a Christian friend to discover how wrong they've been. In the worship of the local church, they should witness joyful praise to the Lord be wrapped in the warmth of loving fellowship and above all hear the preaching of glad glad tidings of salvation from on high. David Dixon writes, The church is the joy of the whole earth by holding out to all the light of the saving doctrine and showing the authority, the power, the wisdom, and the grace of Christ. John Piper wrote a book titled God is the Gospel that agrees with the theme of Psalm 48. His point was the knowledge of God is itself good news for salvation. In fact, Jesus taught this when he prayed to the Father in John 17:3, And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. God's presence alone made Jerusalem the world's greatest city. And when God's presence was removed, the city fell into disgrace and defeat. God's presence made a stone in the desert of Bethel, the house of God to fleeing Jacob, and the presence of Jesus in the manger of Bethlehem caused the star of God's glory to shine on that diminutive town. And so, too, will the mere presence of Christ lift up any heart with faith, hope, and love. Psalm 48, too, makes a note that in all likelihood points specifically to Christ. The psalmist speaks here of Mount Zion in the far north. And that's a curious statement since Jerusalem was not a city in the northern regions of the world. Some have argued that the city looks to the north, perhaps challenging the citadels of the pagan gods of Mesopotamia. And yet more likely the psalmist here is focusing on the northern portion of Mount Zion, where the temple of God rested. The temple was a strikingly beautiful marvel of the ancient world. And most significantly, it was the one place in the entire world where atonement for sin was made in the presence of the true and holy and just God. The forgiveness of sin and the reconciliation between God and man made Jerusalem as it makes the gospel today the joy of all the earth. And having celebrated Zion's city for its splendor, now the psalmist extols Jerusalem for her might. And in keeping with the theme of Psalm 46 to 48, the presence of God makes Zion a refuge. In Psalm 48:3, it says, "Within her citadels God has made himself known as a fortress." And the statement about God's making himself known as a fortress suggests that the psalm somehow celebrates uh, the remarkable divine deliverance, perhaps the most famous Deliverance occurred in 701 B.C. when God answered the prayer of King Hezekiah by sending the angel of the Lord to slay an Assyrian army of 185,000 men in a single day in 2 Kings 19:1 through 37 There are other options, including God's protection of Jerusalem from the combined armies of Ammon, and Moab, and Mount Seir in the time of Jehoshaphat. And on that occasion, the king assembled all Israel to stand as one before the Lord in prayer. Including their little ones, their wives, and their children, according to Second Chronicles twenty thirteen. In fact, Jehoshaphat prayed, "O oh, our God, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you." Second Chronicles uh, twenty twelve says. And the Lord sent a prophet with a reply, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, 2 Chronicles 20, 15, and 17 tells us. Jehoshaphat went out in the morning with his army, led by the singing Levites. And when they reached the enemy camp, they found, out, found signs of a rout with bodies strewn about as the Lord had responded to their singing by bringing a violent confusion to their foe. And so it was that God made himself known as a fortress, as Psalm 48.3 tells us, to that believing king. And now the details of Psalm forty-eight. 4-7 suggests that this psalm may indeed look to Jehoshaphat's victory, since it speaks of a plurality of kings assembled against the city that celebrates that God scattered and shattered the enemy, just as happened in Second Chronicles 20. And now it's also noteworthy that among the Levites who led Jehoshaphat's army were the sons of Korah to whom Psalm 48's authorship is attributed. This and other biblical examples show us that God's people are not immune from suffering trials, some of them very severe. Israel would face painful struggles, and Jerusalem would be beset with mighty foes such as the Assyrians or the eastern hordes of Jehoshaphat's time. What God has promised is that he will reveal himself as a fortress to all who flee to him. The mistake of some suffering Christians sometimes making shipwreck of their faith is to blame God for their misfortunes. And yet, according to Psalm 48, God is not the problem. He is the answer. We should never flee from God in our suffering, but run to him and find ourselves safe from our deadly enemies. The psalmist particularly notes the dismay with which God afflicts his foes. In verses in Psalm 48, 4-5, which says, For behold, the kings assembled, they came together. And as soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. This rapid succession of verbs suggests the sudden utter dismay by the enemy. Julius Caesar famously inscribed his victories in Gaul with a terse succession of verbs. Vene, vidi, vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. And the Hebrew verbs of first five have a same dramatic phonetic effect. They saw, they were astounded, they panicked, they fled. And now the psalmist employs two apt analogies to show the effect of the assault of God. The first is the anguish of the woman in labor who is unable to avoid or even delay affliction. And the second analogy speaks of the mightiest ships of the day, the ships of Tarshish, being scattered by the blowing of a sudden strong east wind in Psalm 48, 6 through 7. And the second image is picked up by Revelation 18, 17 through 20, in describing the fall of a godless world as represented by Mystery Babylon. And both of these images show God as reducing the enemies of his people to panic by a sudden onslaught of divine power. This kind of divine deliverance is not restricted to Bible times. One nearly literal example of the psalm scenario was unexpected: the unexpected defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. The cause at stake was the gospel. England had joined the Protestant reformation and the fiercely Roman Catholic Spaniards were determined to put the world or put the sword to the gospel spreading English church Spain's king Philip II sent 130 great war galleons carrying 17,000 soldiers to effect the conquest history records the gallant sea defense of Sir Francis Drake and credits the smaller more nimble English ships with having more advantage over the massive, more powerfully armed, but less maneuverable Spaniards. The English defeated the Armada, destroying and capturing many ships. The most significant cause of the English triumph, however, was a sudden change in the weather with a wind that blew the Spanish galleons out of the channel and upward toward Scotland, wrecking scores of mighty ships on the Irish coast. Less than half the Spanish fleet returned to its ports. And the defeat was so thorough that the age of the Spanish sea's dominance ended forever. While historians attribute the victory to English skill and valor, the English themselves gave praise to God for their victory. And when Queen Elizabeth struck a coin celebrating the Armada's defeat, it read, God Blue. The same God that we're talking about from that story just a second ago is the mighty fortress of the church today. While most of us will not see dramatic events such as those of King Jehoshaphat or Queen Elizabeth, Psalm 48, 8 reminds us that God is present a present power for his people. And our text says, As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, every single Christian should say amen to that. It is important for us as Christians to know about God's past mighty acts of salvation, especially God's victory over sin and death at the cross of Christ. But we are also to experience God's power at work in answer to our prayers and support of our gospel witness. James Boyce says, We have also heard what God has done in the lives of other people, how He provided for them in hard times, protected them in moments of danger, comforted them in loss, Perhaps you were told of such a special act of God by your parents. As you learn to trust him, you should begin to experience such personal blessing yourself. And you shall be able to say, as I have heard, so I have seen. And now the psalmist concludes his praise for God's might by saying, God will establish a city forever in Psalm 48.8. This prophecy proves that the psalm has the church in view, and of which the city of Zion was a symbol and a type. In time, God judged Jerusalem for its idolatry and allowed it to be destroyed by enemies, but the church is established forever by the covenant promise of God. And speaking of the church that he is building, Jesus promised in Matthew 6.18 that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And having praised God's city for its display of the Lord's splendor and might, the psalmist then catalogs a number of other divine attributes that revealed in Jerusalem for his praise. The chief idea is that of Psalm 48:10, which says, As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. The name of God involves all that God is, including his great saving works for his people. And as these are proclaimed to the ends of the earth, another clear allusion to the world's wide mission of the church, the praise of God goes forth from the city of God. And so Psalm 48 reminds us that having trusted in the salvation of Christ for ourselves. The church has, as her chief calling, the preaching of the gospel for the salvation of others both near and far. See, God is to be praised for the way that Jerusalem bore testimony to his love. Psalm 48, 9 says, We have thought of your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. The temple revealed God's merciful love through the offerings performed there to atone for sin. And we likewise declare God's love by preaching the death of Christ for our sins. The New Testament makes this connection over and over and over again. One example is in 1 John 4.10, which says this, And and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Paul asserted in Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we are sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And now Psalm 48 celebrates God's righteousness and his justice. In Psalm 48, 10 through 11, which says, Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. And these verses refer to the justice of God in punishing sin and his judgment and showing his wrath to his enemies. You see, Christians alike celebrate that God's hand is filled with righteousness since God justifies sinners by the gift of His righteousness, secured by Christ, to be imputed to us by faith in His name. And while the daughters of Zion rejoice to see the enemies of Jerusalem scattered and destroyed in the judgment of God, the daughters of the church rejoice in God's overcoming His enemies with the power of His grace to make them believers and friends of God. And in these and many other ways, the glories of God were displayed in his holy city, Jerusalem. The psalmist invites his readers to tour the city so as to learn how to praise God and pass on the faith to following generations. Psalm forty-eight, twelve through 13 says, Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her seduels that you may tell the next generation. Christians should do the same by coming to know the great truths revealed in Scripture and then teaching them to other generations. And what are the ramparts of the church, the bulwarks that establish her safety forever? The great Puritan theologian highlighted five bulwarks of our faith that give assurance of salvation. The first, Owen pointed out, was the kingship of Jesus for the true Zion of his church. The world has seen many kings and many rulers, some faithful, some wise, other cruel, others cruel and cunning. All will pass from the scene, but the Christian can celebrate the eternal reign of King Jesus over his church. James Boyce says, He utterly sovereign, wonderfully compassionate, all wise, extraordinarily patient, all at the same time, wherever he is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and his is an eternal kingdom. And so with Jesus as our Lord and King, we will experience the everlasting blessings of peace in the city where righteousness dwells. And second, John Owen points out the promises of God, which are innumerable. God will and must be faithful to fulfill all that he's promised. And his church dwells securely under the towers of this divine pledge. And we therefore need to know what God has promised in scripture, especially of the forgiveness of sin, eternal life, the resurrection into glory. And then to rely on, I mean, the promises when darkness and doubt descend. One old hymn says, Soldiers who to Christ belong, trust ye in his word. Be strong, for his promises are sure, his rewards for a endure. And so Owen noted as another bulwark of our faith, the watchful providence of God over the church. Men and women must carefully watch whatever they treasure. We are to care about our families and our possessions. And so we place security systems in our homes. We care about our money. So we have financial advisors watch over our portfolio. And yet our watchfulness is imperfect, however, and often fails. But God treasures His church. His watchfulness never fails. Psalm 121, 4 and 7 promises, Behold, He will keep Israel, will never slumber nor sleep. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. You see, our Lord is so watchful that it is impossible for events to surprise Him with respect to His church and to His people. His watchful care is a strong rampart for our defense. And finally, the church is protected by God's special presence with her. The ancient Jews looked to the temple and to the Ark of the Covenant, and they knew that God was specially present in their city. Psalm 46.5 says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Psalm 48.3 celebrates that God is with the citadels. The church and individual Christians can rejoice to have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within, and history shows that the physical walls of Jerusalem could not protect the people if God abandoned them in punishment for their sins. And when Jerusalem was rebuilt, the Lord challenged Zechariah to seek a stronger protection than stone and iron, looking to him instead in Zechariah 2.3, which says, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. And how important it is today that the church not look to numbers, to money, or fleshly excitement to gain her success and security. Let our glory as a church be the presence of God by the means of the Holy Spirit, especially in the preaching of the whole Word of God. And now, Owen summed up all these bark works with the great strength and the assurance that God's people find in the covenant of God. All of our hope and all of our security is bound up in God's covenant, Promise for our salvation, since God has bound Himself by an oath sealed in Christ's blood to save all who call on the name of the Lord for salvation. And this argument, made so eloquently by the writer of Hebrews to his fearful and persecuted readers, through faith in Jesus, he says, Christians have come not to the Mount Zion of the old covenant with its fearful threats of the law, but to the Mount Zion of the new covenant in Christ, with its bulwarks of saving grace. Hebrews depicts believers as having gained safety within the city high upon the mountain of God, strong and secure in God's covenant fidelity. In Hebrews 12, 22 through 23, he says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the gathering, unto the assembly, I mean, of the firstborn who are enthroned, enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And greatest of all our security and chief among all of our aims to eternal life is the new covenant sealed by the death of God's Son for our sins. And now the writer of Hebrews concludes his portrait saying that God's mountain city is secured by Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that he speaks a better word than the blood of Abel in Hebrews 12.24. And now the writer of Hebrews follows that picture with two explanations— the first is for those who have not yet entered God's city through faith in his Savior. When he says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking since you reject the since to reject the gospel is to become one of the enemies of the wrath of God. And then to believers, he adds an exhortation similar to that of Psalm 48 in Hebrews 12, uh, 12 28 through 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. i seeing the splendor, the might, the security of our salvation. Believers should tell the next generation, this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever, Psalm 48, 13 through 14 says. And there is much for us to tell and to celebrate in this final verse. God is our guide to lead us to salvation. God is forever so that we can trust him with all of our hope, including our very souls. But perhaps the most important exclamation is this one. This is God, our God, verse 14. This is the point of this psalm for the Christian today. The God of the Bible and that of Psalm 48, the glorious God of beauty, power, and saving faithfulness, is your God through faith in Christ alone, so that you should live with assurance, with purpose, and with joy. Whatever the world may choose for us to trust and even worship, We are to exalt the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God revealed in Scripture. Have you committed yourself to Christ? And now the final statement of Psalm 45 is a promise that if you commit yourself to God through faith in Christ, He will guide you into eternal life and protect you from every enemy that would destroy your soul. And now the Hebrew text is particularly vivid here, saying not merely that God will guide us forever, but that God will guide us through death. No power, no enemy, no Threat can defeat or even destroy the people of God's city. Jesus says this in John 6, 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Here is God. Here is hope. Here is meaning. Here is value. Here is purpose. And now the question is, what is the response of your heart to this? The response of our heart should be to cry out to the lord to extol his holiness his beauty his glory his majesty he is altogether good he is altogether holy he is altogether just and so i plead with you today to do that very thing to look to christ to trust his love to trust his goodness in the midst of all of life and now let's pray father we thank you that your word is true and that you stand behind your word and that you are always you are always use your word in the life of your people to remind to instruct to to pierce the heart to bring conviction to bring comfort to bring the hope of jesus to hurting people so lord i pray today that we would not just look to you but but that our lives would be grounded in and shaped by you through your word and that your spirit would take this message and that you would shape us and mold us evermore into worshipers that worship you, as John 4 says, in spirit and truth. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen and amen.